Hello and welcome to the Mison podcast. I'm Karen Culver and today it's my pleasure to meet Zoe Apacic and talk about her research into some of the most beautiful cities of Central Europe and their ritual and royal origins. Zoe was born to Serbian and Croatian parents, was educated in Beograd and London. In her early teens, she discovered art history, having been mesmerized by a Renoir painting. However, a number of weekend trips to medieval cathedrals of England led her to abandon the Impressionists and enroll in the Courtauld Institute of Art at the University of London, where she completed a BA, MA and PhD focusing on medieval art and architecture. While researching her master's thesis on Edward I's new town, Winchelsea in East Sussex, she became interested in medieval urbanism and town building. Following her PhD on 14th century Prague, she's been researching, lecturing and writing on central European medieval architecture, its urban spaces and rituals. Since 2004, she's been a member of the Department of Art History at Birkbeck College, University of London, as a lecturer and senior lecturer. She now lives in West London with a fellow art historian and their three daughters. Art history and the medieval world still remain a source of infinite fascination, lifelong friendships, and the abiding urge to travel, see, and explore. Zoe, welcome to the Mise podcast. Thank you very much, Karen. That was a very <laughs> wonderful introduction. Thank you. It was, it's very good to be here. It's good to meet you as well. Having read some of your really interesting papers, I realize your focus of your research is on the 14th and 15th century cities in Central Europe, specifically Krakow, Prague, Vienna, and to a lesser extent, Budapest. I know all these cities well and I love them. But why do you focus on those cities and what is the general or specific connection between them? Yes, that's a very uh, interesting question. Um, I would say it was a gradual process. Started with my PhD in Prague, and that immediately led me to Krakow. The two cities are very closely aligned politically and culturally in this period of the 14th century. And then I discovered Vienna and found more similarities. And this nexus developed between these royal centers of power, ecclesiastical centers, that also became a university towns, which started doing something very interesting with the urban fabric at about the same time, so 14th and 15th century. And that led me on to another idea, which is about the development of a late medieval and early modern city in Central Europe. It's something quite different from Italy, which has been explored and written about much more extensively, I felt. And because of the close similarity and not just geographical proximity of these uh, places, I was able to unpick and explore what binds them together and how they address certain issues around ceremony, urbanism, architecture in a very thoughtful, developed way uh, as a kind of birth of early modern city in Europe. So that was the kind of basis of my research. So it wasn't haphazard, it was quite directed, but gradual. I know your research looks at the relationship between what I would call urban planning, that being the layout and usage of space within an urban environment, 
and the formal ceremonial life of the rulers and religious leaders. It seems that, at least in Prague and Krakow, the urban space was changed, created, to enable formal procession, formal ceremony, which must have been extremely costly. Can you explain the ceremonial needs of the elite and why they took place in such a public way? Yes, I think ceremonial needs of elite existed for centuries before. I think we can really take that back to um, Roman times and emperors and their triumphs and so on. And that often was um, accompanied by some form of architectural decorum, sometimes quite substantial urbanistic and architectural interventions. What happens later in the Middle Ages in the period that I'm looking at is that certain ideas about the cult of rulership develop. They seem to borrow a lot from ecclesiastical powers, from church displays, and that can be taken back to the 13th century, especially places like France, but also the Byzantium, where emperors are using relics and using certain ideology to bolster their standing. Um, so there is this notion that emperors and rulers, kings are kind of divinely appointed. They are Christ's vicars on earth. And these instruments like relics and coronation insignia bolster and emphasize that particular status. Now, the next step is how you present that to your subjects. And that could be done in a variety of ways. And clearly there are key ceremonies around coronation, a funeral, which are kind of the beginning and the end of each reign. And they're very, very significant. They're very politically charged. And then the next step is expanding that beyond the palace, the church, the sort of more intimate surrounding of the court elite and creating more of an effective public display, which will communicate something to the subject and also to the wider world beyond, because these are very momentous events that were written about in chronicles and so on. And then they often have this very long lasting effect in, in the shape of new buildings, new bridges, new towers, new churches dedicated in honor of events. So for example, Charles IV returns to Prague from France, having spent over 20 years there, brings back home his new wife, Blanche of Alois. And after their coronation in Prague Cathedral, which was not cathedral at that moment, he founds a church in what is now the new town, which is really commemorates that moment of the coronation. And even some of the timber used for the platform for the coronation ceremony is used for the building of that church. So you can see immediately how a ritual and some very ambitious and elaborate patronal act can be closely combined. Um, I suppose what we're talking here is a much bigger investment in urban planning which is focused on that notion of ceremony and how that could be built into town planning. And that is that really quite sophisticated level that we only encounter in, in the later Middle Ages. I'm interested in the idea that Charles took the ceremony out into public spaces. And while reading your papers, I noticed that one sentence you say, by taking his festival out of a church and into the marketplace, Charles IV not only increased the participatory nature of the event, he also transformed the perception of the city itself 
from an urban into a liturgical experience. That struck me as actually strange and profound. And I really wondered what impact that change had on the reign of Charles IV, the city, and perhaps even the relationship between the population and their ruler. Yes, uh, that's also a, a fascinating question. And there is an interesting moment happening in Prague, which is really leading the way because there is this particular moment that we have. On the one hand, King of Bohemia, who then becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, deciding not to shift his center of power west, but to remain in Central Europe and really fashion Prague around his persona and his new very high office. Um, so we can really see the interface between these events and quite a lot of what he does in Prague is very biographical, autobiographical, I should say. So the kind of moment of marketplace is, well, on the one hand, quite straightforward. Relic displays normally took place in churches or immediately outside. They could be processed around the city, but the church is the focus for this event. Prague, by this stage, 1344, has a new cathedral uh, being built. It's been elevated into an archbishopric and as a treasury for a large collection of relics, which it already had and which was then amassed additionally during the reign of Charles IV. So there was a place where these relics could be displayed, but he decides to have a new relic ceremony called the Feast of the Holy Lance and Nails, for which the center stage was Prague Newtown's main square, which is now known as Charles Square. It's absolutely colossal. It's still one of the largest squares in Europe. When you stand on it, you realize quite the, uh, the scale of it and how unusual that is in terms of what we think medieval cities look like. So like lots of big squares, this was essentially a marketplace. It had a covered market, it had a salting house, it had a town hall at one end, a series of houses that were built gradually around it. So all the usual things we expect to find in a civic center. But in addition to that, it had a um, platform that was erected around every Easter for the display of these passion relics that Charles IV inherited with his office of the Holy Roman Emperor and later on a fixed chapel uh, dedicated to Corpus Christi. So alongside these mundane day-to-day -day activities of the square, at least once a year, it became a place of very, very special significance. And during that feast day, the pilgrims would gather, they'd be shown these relics, and they accumulate indulgences. I'm sure your audience will understand what those are. They buy you out of uh, limbo. So it's a very profitable spiritually, there's a market going on there. So Prague becomes a very important pilgrimage center because there are no more precious relics in the Middle Ages. So you can imagine this square becoming something really, something else in those moments. So that's one moment. The other is that some of these main processions that happen much less often, so coronation and funeral procession of Charles IV, also traverse the same square. So it's not only the square that became religious in some way, but the meaning of other institutions in the new town changed because there were serious of buildings that were founded by Charles IV, serious of religious institutions, churches and monasteries. And their meaning too kind of became enhanced. So we can see then that this square is not just a ceremonial space, but could be seen as becoming something quite spiritually significant. All that is happening at the time of Jerusalem is out of bounds. So we're finding these new Jerusalems around Europe. 
and not just buildings, but part of the entire city. I hope that answers it. It's a bit of a lengthy answer. Um, I've been having several trains of thought, and one of them of working to gain indulgences, which mm -hmm. then reduce your time in purgatory. To a non-religious person, it sounds about as sensible as investing in bitcoins. <laughs> Probably was like that. You're not the only person to be skeptical. Of course, we know, all know what happened very soon after. And there was a huge backlash against this and other religious practices, which were considered to be not very sound. This is putting it very diplomatically. And of course, one of the earliest centers of this resistance and demands for reform came from Bohemia. And actually, by the early 15th century, Newtown becomes a battlefield. It's very, very badly damaged by the Hussites. So this sort of New Jerusalem idea gets unpicked really, really quickly. But it was a wonderful concept. It was a very complex and, and sophisticated idea that never existed before in that way. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the collection of relics that Charles IV collected. You say he was devoted to collecting relics and it was the passion relics that excited his passion. What did it say about Charles himself that he wanted to have these relics? Yes, he was a, a very passionate collector of relics. Um, it was a sort of obsession, really, because we have all these accounts of him. He travelled a lot across Europe, across the Holy Roman Empire, and obviously spent some time in France and Italy too. So after a while, these religious institutions that he <laughs> went to visit along the way started really being terrified uh, of him because they were worried that they might lose their most precious possessions. He collected a lot and also took away things that sometimes not quite by force, but you, know, you couldn't say no to a, a Holy Roman Emperor. And he mostly brought them back to Prague. The passion relics were particularly important because they contained the lance and fragments of the true cross. And those seemed to be very valuable in the same way that the crown of thorns was of particular importance to Louis IX and around which he built the Saint-Chapelle, this great reliquary. So there's another way in which relics are important, not just to bolster the status of the monarch, because they gave them almost supernatural powers. In Charles IV's case, he saw himself not only as a political leader, but also as a spiritual leader, someone whose duty is also to lead them to salvation. Part of this enriching its monasteries, churches, the cathedral, his own private treasury, with relics was part of that idea that he was seen to be almost like a quasi-priest and the members of his court supported that notion too and they contributed as well. Now the way in which relics had an interplay or changed the appearance of a city I've already explained in your previous question but if we take the monarch out of the picture a little bit there's a new genre of architecture that develops around the display. You know, every display, every theatre, even a religious theatre, needs its platform, needs its setting. And in this case, there is a relic display platform. These were often temporary things. We know what they looked like in places like Prague and also especially Nuremberg. An engraving exists from the 15th century. But Vienna had an actually a stone arch, which was also a relic display platform, which was only used when they were displaying relics once a year. 
and otherwise it served like a gateway into the holy precinct of the cathedral itself. So it started reshaping and changing the public space around the cathedral. And as I've argued in one of my publications, the whole external scenery, the vista around the cathedral becomes very important too. So in that sense, relics defined in, in this period the relationship between the ruler and the subjects, a narrative that developed in the previous century, but also in themselves, because of the theatre involved around them, started you know, affecting architectural and in some cases urban appearance of these cities that I've been looking at. Zoe, you've mentioned several times urban planning, and this has interested me. I know in the 14th, 15th century, both Prague and Krakow had new towns built right on the edge of the city by their rulers. As you reported in your paper, architecture and ceremony in Krakow and Prague, 1335 to 1455, there were many similarities between the Prague new town and Kazimierz, the new town of Krakow. I wondered, were these similarities simply happen chance or fashion, or was there a more formalized exchange of ideas? And new towns today are often built in response to population pressure, to the quality of life expectations, and to political expediency. In the Middle Ages, what were the incentives for rulers to build new towns particularly as the new towns were so close to the existing major cities. Yes, that's very interesting. I think some of the incentives are very similar and pretty much the same. And the tradition of new town building goes a long way back, uh, founding the cities. Um, I think you are absolutely right in saying that what is unusual here, that they're being attached to already very sizable urban environments, big cities by medieval standards like Krakow and Prague. In both cases, Casimir and Charles IV hoped to increase the size. Charles, as I mentioned earlier, having been elevated to this highest rank among the rulers of Europe, Holy Roman Emperor, heir to Charlemagne no less, wanted Prague to look like an imperial city and it instigated quite a lot of urban interventions into its fabric. He rebuilt its bridge, he refashioned the, the castle where the royal residence and the cathedral were. So Prague was a massive building site, but the new town was really meant to double its size. Uh, and if you look on the plan, even today, you can see quite how ambitious this was. Krakow, interestingly, I tend to start with Prague and then move to these other places, but actually... In this case, it was Krakow that led the way. And there, are, there is evidence that Casimir started this almost about 10 years earlier. So in both cases, we have the opposite of what we think when we think about medieval towns. So not a little picturesque, meandering streets that lead you suddenly into a kind of interesting square with a church. So there are checkerboard with cardo decumanum structure that we find, you know, going back to Vitruvius and theories about urban planning that Romans also discussed and wrote about. Interestingly for me, we have the notion of the square as being the focus and the center. And we talked about squares and how they can be used uh, practically and symbolically and how that meaning can shift. They have very strategically positioned churches and the strategy involved here is going back to the notion of ceremony. So both Krakow and Prague Think about ceremony where planting the churches and creating these main roads, these 
Paul Crossley, my beloved and much missed supervisor, called them axes of meaning. It's a term that's been now around for a while, but streets that lead you to and from very important places. And the route you take is very significant to what kind of church you pass by, where you're going to, how you can be seen, what square you traverse. All these things are kind of thought through. So we see a kind of synergy between Krakow and Prague around these ideas. You don't just build districts and streets, few churches here and there. You actually think very carefully of, of a kind of greater decorum in use and its ceremonial meaning. So in that sense, these two in particular are very relevant. Um, I, I don't want to be too art historical about this and just to think of architecture, decorum, ceremony, relics. Of course, economy was very important. If you extend your city, you have more inhabitants, they pay more tax, they trade more. And Prague at this time was also university town, so students coming to settle. So you increase its cultural prestige. It just becomes a more significant place on the map. And both Prague and Krakow managed to do that in Europe in the same way that you know, London and Paris did the century before. So there are lots of incentives. Now, having said that, it doesn't always work out. So Prague, Newtown, undone by political circumstances that follow. We quite often see the intentions are there, but the, the kind of big idea uh, was undermined by changing political and economic circumstances in Europe, which were very difficult in the 14th century. I was wondering how detailed were the urban plans? Nowadays, urban planners will have height restrictions, size restrictions, zoning. So you have industry in one area, retail in another, and so on. Was that done? Yes, we can see that the churches and monasteries, but otherwise, was it planned? Yes, yes and no, in a sense that there must have been a plan. So you don't start building something that costs so much without having an idea well, where you're heading. And that's the same for a tiny parish church in a village and a new town. So there must have been a plan. Alas, unlike my colleagues who work on Italian material, we just simply don't have the same level of evidence. So in Italy, we know that there were decrees and there were laws governing the appearance of cities. You couldn't build balconies in Siena. You couldn't build towers in Florence and other places of a certain height. So some of that was about appearance and harmonizing, for example, the Campo in Siena. Others are to do with safety and sedition. Um, what trades you should have in a square, nothing too smelly or noisy because it you know, undermines the beauty of the place you're building. So we know more about Italy in that respect, but we don't know in the cities that I work on what detailed plans were. So it's hard to kind of develop a very precise idea, but from looking at the material that we have, so the fabric of the city, the buildings, we can see that there is a fair level of thought involved in the planning too. So the, the, the direction of the streets, the size of squares, Newtown in Prague had three squares, in fact, where the parishes were, their dedication was important, the facades, which were the towers faced, 
the shape of buildings. So the nine monasteries in Prague were all different plan, more or less. Uh, so there was a sense of variety in it too, uh, accounting for parts of the city sloping up, the appearance of walls and gates and so on. So we can see quite a lot from that. We can judge that there was quite a lot of thinking about safety, about practicalities, uh, but also about appearances. And if I may add, there was one other dimension, actually, which is, I think, important. And something that I'm particularly working on now, which is vertical planning. You know, how do the things look vertically and align with towers and domes and uh, heights of houses? The skyline is also very important. This is something we still admire in Prague. It looks remarkably medieval for a, for a modern European capital city. But when we stand on Petrine Hill or look across the bridges into the old and the new town, you know, you're still struck by that. So I think there was perhaps some thinking about verticality as well. And that would work for Krakow as well. Indeed, indeed. The one town we haven't talked about yet is Vienna. In the chapter of your book, Companion to Medieval Vienna, you discuss monuments around Vienna and particularly on the main routes to the city, which are obviously ceremonial routes. Could you describe all these monuments, what routes they were on, who built them and why? So these are, this is a very interesting group of public monuments. There were lots of them and I would direct those who are particularly interested in this subject to Achim Timmermann's wonderful publications on this. So what we know of medieval architecture is very limited because we only know important big buildings that survived all these centuries. But there were a lot of public monuments that did not survive. And among those are things like wayside crosses, pillories, places of executions. Many of these things were actually placed outside city walls. There were boundaries, there were road signs, there were kind of markers. Um, there could also be places of punishment because forms of punishment often took place only outside city walls. You were kind of literally expelled from civilized place uh, to something beyond. So gallows and so on would be outside. We know this from engravings. Some survive in much restored form. One of the most famous one still visible outside now, inside modern Vienna, is so-called Spinnerin am Kreuz. So this is one of these tabernacles that was placed outside on one of the main entrance points into Vienna. And there were a number of these that also often close to bridges. So again, talking about visibility and vertical planning, these are things that you could see a long way off before you actually enter the city. So there were ways of communicating between different cities, knowing where you are long before our mobile phones and GPS maps. Also as a warning, as a kind of moments of religious experience, because we could have wayside crosses, stations of the cross also work their ways in and out of the city. So you can imagine the landscape where the kind of saturation that you see inside the city, visual saturation of various architectural forms, small and large, would then extend themselves outside the city to a landscape littered with monuments, with different meaning and different uses. So I think it's important to think about that. The things didn't stop at the city gates and also just how much of that uh, landscape we, we lost. 
But next time you come across a sort of lump of stone by the side of the road, it's quite important to consider whether this is actually something much older and more significant than it looks. You're saying some of these monuments tell you you're getting close to the city. I can remember when we lived in the UK driving down the M11 and seeing the NatWest Tower as the very oh, yes. first thing you see of London as you're driving towards it. And you must be 20, 30 miles away. And it just says, not much further to go. And an interesting point, this first sighting of London skyline is a bank in the city of London, which I guess hints at the business and purpose of London. Absolutely. And, you know, with the same thing, some of the important illuminations I've come across, uh, which I've used as illustrations for that chapter, actually show Vienna from outside where you could see the city walls. And some of these landmarks are like Spinneram Kreuz are actually visible. It's a way in which you can identify and recognize a place, just as in the, you know, Baltic towns of the Hansa, you know, when your ship was sailing into a port, you could recognize you're coming home by seeing the cathedral tower or the town hall spire. Uh, I think these are very, very important identifiers, both of cities, but also of broader landscape. You've noted in your papers that there were similarities in church architecture between Prague and Vienna, and to some extent Krakow as well. In similar to the Newtown development, I was wondering, were these just chance? fashion, structured change of ideas, or was it just the same architect working around, same builders working around and putting up the same building? It certainly isn't accidental. And then there are these other two other possibilities that you mentioned that uh, I think we can see both of those at play. Fashion, I think, is quite important. Things in each period develop and certain trends evolve. They're not overwhelmingly present everywhere at the same time, but both patrons start thinking in certain direction, architects are able to do more and more and there are shifts. So that's a kind of more generalized answer, but I can give something, I can home in a little bit more specifically on this region. And I think that relationship between Prague and Vienna is helpful because there we can see the same workshop at play at two major sites. So critical to this, and I haven't actually mentioned any names of artists and architects working in, in these cities. Quite often we don't know who they are, but in this case there is one architect and then a dynasty that emerged from that, and that is Peter Parler. Peter Parler is a very significant figure, and he's employed by Charles IV to complete Prague Cathedral after first architect Matthew of Arras dies in 1352, so he comes a couple of years later, takes over the workshop and carries on working till his death in 1399. And then his sons and other members of the workshop continue until this general collapse happens in Prague and everything comes to standstill. They become, obviously, through association, through this key project in Central Europe, very famous in their own rights. And then they travel to Vienna and continue working on Vienna Cathedral, another great project, uh, developing services in Stevens in, in Vienna. And then beyond that, they're present in a number of sites as far away as Basel and Milan and places in southern Germany, sometimes in person, but sometimes it's their style and 
the kind of forms that they develop in Prague that become fashionable and popular and are picked up and developed further by other German master masons, architects and their lodges. And so Prague Cathedral is followed by a particular flourishing of late Gothic architecture, especially in southern Germany, also in Austria and some other parts of Europe. This is also a moment where we know uh, more about practices of architectural work and how lodges operate. Uh, we have drawings that survive. So Vienna has a wonderful collection of medieval drawings that have survived from successive cathedral lodges. So there we can really study methods of their work and the fact that these drawings were kept and could be used by successive masons working on a project quite often. The project went way beyond the lifespan of any single mason and their team. We also know that they had meetings. There was a famous meeting in Regensburg. We know they had books which they exchanged, which they started producing. So some of these things we know, you know, go back to the 13th century, but just simply don't survive. So we know that there was an exchange of ideas. So I think as well as thinking about emperors and their motivation, we need to think about masons and what they were able to do. And there was some extraordinary talent around in the 14th and 15th century, really quite exceptional, very innovative, original, breathtaking. It's some of the best Gothic we can find. Gosh, with one or two words changed, that answer could be... 20th, 21st century architecture as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And this is not exclusive for, uh, for Germany and for Europe. We find similar trends in England and elsewhere, yeah. Every time I hear more and more about the, the medieval world, which has always interested me, I'm struck yet again how so many of the echoes of the medieval world are still with us. And you've now added yet another one of architecture and the exchange of architectural ideas and the spread of ideas. Zoe, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Karen, for this uh, fascinating, very intelligent questions. And I look forward to the next time. Today, I've been talking to Zoe Apacic about religion, ritual, royalty, and the relationship of those to the urban development and landscape. I hope you all have found it as interesting and enjoyable as I have. Please do look out for the next MISEM podcast in which MISEM members talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you think other MISEM members would find interesting, please do contact me through the MISEM board or the website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISEM podcast. Goodbye.